Esther chapter 7. You can find it on page 783, 783 of your pew Bibles. Esther chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary, an enemy, is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a gallows, 75 feet high, stands by Haman's house. He had made it for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Thus ends our reading of God's sufficient word. May all who hear it find their enemy defeated. How does God save? How does he deliver his people from their sins? The easy answer, of course, is that Jesus died for our sins. But ask yourself, why? Why does this have to be the case? Why couldn't God just forgive those who, who repent and trust in him without having to send his son to the cross? Wouldn't that be the more loving thing to do? Why did Jesus have to suffer? If you remember a few weeks back when I preached on Esther 6, it was shown that the author used a chiastic structure, the, the center of which pointed to the king, king's sleepless night. It also gave us a clue as to what the major theme running throughout the book of Esther was, namely that God often 
works out his plan of salvation through his providence. He uses ordinary means to bring about a reversal of fortune for his people who are under attack by their enemy. Now today, we are going to focus on the fate of that enemy. Look again at verses 1 and 2. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Now, if you recall, Esther had been patient in her request. She had already given one banquet for the king and Haman, and now this was her second. By showing such patience, she demonstrated honor to her husband, according to Persian customs. Yet she also piqued the king's interest, giving Xerxes that sleepless night, a night where he discovered Mordecai's loyal bravery. And it was this that would turn the tide for the Jewish people. And unbeknownst to Esther, her patience also served to fuel Haman's pride. You see, Haman had a big ego. And he was just thrilled that the queen had invited him to the banquet and no one else. And now there was a second one. And this allowed him, that night, allowed him time to set up that 75-foot high stake on which he wished to impale Mordecai. Of course, that plan was thwarted, and Mordecai was honored by the king instead. And now... Esther had so pleased her husband that she had his ear and could present her request. She would now begin the the delicate task of somehow petitioning for her life and for the uh, lives of her fellow Jews without incriminating Xerxes. This was a difficult challenge. Let's see how she did. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we have merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Here's the situation. The the order for the destruction of the Jews was sealed with Xerxes' signet ring. Truth be told, it was his responsibility. Yet Esther had to save face for the king. She couldn't just say, you you know that decree you signed off on? The one to kill all the Jews? Well, I'm a Jew. No. Taking such an approach would have brought dishonor for her husband. 
and could have directed his anger at her. Subtlety was key. Her goal was to, to guide the king's anger, which, which would surely come away from her and towards Haman. So she began with kind of this vague reference. And respectfully, she repeated back to him his questions. What is your petition? What is your request? By answering in the same manner. This is my petition. Grant me my life. This is my request. Spare my people. Her own life and the lives of her people are one and the same. No longer is this Esther speaking. This is Hadassah, that orphan Jew, pleading her case. And then she did something truly courageous. She repeated the, the same language that was used in the edict. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. Compare this language to that of Esther chapter 3 verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Now it's slightly more difficult to see it in the English since the NIV chose to use the word slaughter instead of kill in chapter 7. But in the Hebrew, the wording is the same. Now this could have gone one of two ways. By using the language of the king's edict, blame could either have been placed on the author of these words, which would have been Haman, or fault could have been placed on the owner of the ring that sealed that letter, which would have been Xerxes. It was a calculated risk, one that Esther had to take. Let's see how the king responded. Verse 5. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? The king's ire has now been lit. Yet he hadn't yet caught on to everything Esther had been saying. Either he was slow-witted or he was just ignorant of Haman's edict. My money's on the latter. Remember, he had never inquired as to which people Haman desired to exterminate. And as the city of Susa was in disarray over the command, Xerxes, if you recall, was just sitting back, sipping his wine, as if nothing was happening. Once again, we see God's providence at work here. This mental lapse by the king, however it occurred, left room for Esther to direct the king's fury. Look at the first part of verse 6. Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Truer words could not have been spoken. Haman was all these things. He was a foe. He was the antagonist. And he was wicked. 
This proud, proud man let his ego direct his steps. If you think about it, his true desire was to be like King Xerxes. He desired that every knee would bow to him and every tongue would confess that he was this great man. Yet when one man would not do it, he chose to place that sin upon a whole nation. Haman truly was an agagite, an enemy of the Jews. And now it was his turn to react. Look at the rest of verse 6. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. How often do people sin with the delusion that they won't get caught? Whether it's that little white lie that you tell or, or that adulterous affair that you've been keeping secret. Nothing remains hidden forever. Look at Proverbs 5, verses 21 and 22. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. Haman was caught. And he was terrified before the king and the queen. Look at verse 7. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. The king had left the room. Now, in all likelihood, this was partially because of his fury. Xerxes was not a man to let his emotions dictate his actions. But I'm also guessing that another part of him began to realize his own culpability and what had taken place. He had allowed such an edict to go forth without investigating the matter. Could he justly punish a man for an edict that he had approved? And then there's the fact that this was an irrevocable decree. This one lapse in judgment had now put the life of his own wife at risk. He needed to think. He needed a solution. Of course, then there's Haman. He, he saw the king's rage. And there was little doubt as to his fate. He was left with few options. He couldn't follow the king out of the room. He couldn't flee for his life, for if he did that, that would just have confirmed his own guilt. He was in a catch-22. His only hope was to find mercy with the queen. And so, in desperation, he approached her. Verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. 
Now, harem protocol dictated that none but the king or his eunuchs could be within seven steps of any of the king's wives. And this was particularly true when it came to the queen. Yet in his state of terror, Haman had, had fallen upon Esther as she lay upon her couch. In his duress, Haman had clumsily tripped as he approached the queen in order to plead for his life. God's providence is at it again. This loss of footing gave Xerxes the ammo he needed to fire the bullet. Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Verses 9 and 10. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. This suddenness of Haman's death is a bit unnerving. There was no trial, no ability for him to plead his case. His face was quickly covered, and as soon as they could drag him there, he was impaled on the very stake he had prepared for Mordecai earlier that morning. Such will be the case for all those who oppose God. On that final judgment day, the truth will be revealed, and men will be left without excuse. It won't matter if they got away with their evil deeds in this life. God will declare a verdict, and the punishment will be swift and severe. There will be no trial. There will be no opportunity to plead your case, for God already knows your heart. He he judges with perfect wisdom. Haman's story is, is one of tragic irony. You see, his, his own situation was hidden from his eyes. While he sat at the queen's table, he thought he was being honored. Yet he was really on trial. And when he had constructed that 75-foot stake, he thought that his nemesis, Mordecai, would suffer upon it. Yet he was truly building the instrument of his own demise. His sin had caught up with him. The judgment was quick. And he was left speechless. Those like Haman, those who continue in their pride and sin, will not escape. There'll be nowhere that they can run. They will trip over themselves if they try to beg for mercy. For the period for forgiveness will have passed. They have rejected their creator. And now it is time to pay the piper. Look at Hebrews 9 verse 27. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Ask yourself, 
Where do you stand? Are you God's friend? Or are you his enemy? Are you like Haman, allowing sin and arrogance to rule over you? Or have you humbled yourself like Esther, showing honor that is due the king as you beg for your life? Jesus died for your sins. Turn to him. Repent and trust in his work upon the cross. For there will come a time when that opportunity will be gone. And if you think that a a loving God would never send anyone to hell, then you don't know your Bible very well. Yes, God is love, but he is also just. And the fires of hell await those who reject his son. The destruction of Haman may have been set in stone, but yours is not. Humble yourself before your God and petition for your life while there still is time. Look to your king and request that you be spared. Haman's tale is a tragic one, yet his story also points us to another. There is another enemy of God's people whose fate has already been decided. Satan, that vile serpent of old, is the enemy of God's bride. He is the adversary of God's people. And he would like nothing more than than to be worshipped as God. So he tries to destroy and to kill and to annihilate any who will not serve him. Now God allows the devil to move about in his own pride. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. God tolerates Satan's activities. Yet when all is said and done, this enemy will have accomplished nothing but to dig his own grave. We read about that in our first scripture reading. Look at Revelation verse 10. Chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Evil, wherever it occurs, and for whatever reason, is always in rebellion towards God. Evil is not some detached force that we need to reckon with. It is very personal, and its ultimate aim is directed at God. Evil exists because there are creatures who hate their creator, even though they desire to be like him. In order for God to rescue his bride, he must first put down the evil that threatens to kill her. You see, God defines what is loving and what is just. And such justice can only be fulfilled when that evil is destroyed. At the start of the sermon, I asked you, 
Why couldn't God just forgive those who repent and trust in him without having to send his son to the cross? Wouldn't that be the more loving thing to do? Why did Jesus have to suffer? Look at 1 John 4, verse 10. Let's see how God defines love. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God cannot overlook sin. Every sin must be paid for. God would not be both loving and just if he did not punish. Someone has to take the fall. In our story today, it was Haman. His pride and arrogance led him to be hung upon a tree. And it was only through his death that the king's fury subsided. And it is only through the death of our Lord upon the cross that the wrath of God will be satisfied. Like Haman, you should be the one hanging upon the tree. And so should I. Thankfully, Christ went to the cross and the king's fury subsided. Let us pray. Father, we are humbled by your word. It speaks truth that we often don't like to hear. You are a just God and you have wrath towards sinners. We need an atoning sacrifice. Thank you for sending your son to die for our sins, for satisfying your anger. Fill us now with your Holy Spirit and create repentant faith within us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.